This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. I'm super excited to have today London-based One Case Partners, Tom Matthews and Sonika Talani speaking with us. So Tom is a partner in White Case's global m and corporate practice, and he heads the firm's European activism practice. Over 18 years experience advising corporations, banks, private equity firms, activist hedge funds, and founder shareholders in M&A, joint ventures, and corporate governance. Sonica is also a partner at Whitey Case's global M&A and corporate practice, and she advises a wide variety of clients, financial sponsors, and investment banks. So thank you, Tom and Sonica, for taking the time. Thanks, Ron. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. Okay. So I, let's start briefly about your practice at White & Case. Wondering if you work on a number of cross-border activism situations. You know, we see a lot of these kind of U.S. activists targeting U.K., European companies and deals. Is that something that you guys work on? Yeah, the short answer to that, Ron, is yes, absolutely. Certainly here in London, many of the campaigns for UK companies that we work on involve overseas activists, in particular activists based in the US. And we're lucky enough to have a practice that involves us working with many of the leading US funds. That also translates into our French and German practices, for example, on the continent, who also regularly work on campaigns involving overseas activists. And one unique aspect of our practice versus, say, other legal advisors in the market is that we act regularly for both the investor side and the company side. And that's a deliberate decision by us. We feel that acting in that way provides us with proper insights as to how each side works and how each side thinks in a campaign, which allows us to better inform our clients, regardless of whether they're investors or companies, versus only ever seeing one side of the debate. And our approach, we think, is working quite well. We're happy to have doubled our representations for activism in 2022. And we've been repeatedly ranked the number one global law firm for activism in Europe and Asia for several years now in a row. I'd add to that that I think we're particularly well configured as a firm for US activists looking at UK and European situations. We're obviously a US heritage law firm based in New York, but we're also the largest and most active US firm here in the London market. We have a long-standing presence on the ground here and also in major European cities across the continent. We're certainly more generally ranked repeatedly at the top end of the spectrum for M&A transactions, including public M&A. And where there's M&A, there's M&A-related activism. So that flows very neatly into our ability to advise investors and companies on that type of activism work. Yeah, that's very interesting because, as I'm sure you know, in the US, the advisory firms are typically either focusing on advising companies that are being targeted by activists, or they focus on advising activists that target companies, but not both. So I think that's interesting that you have that experience. I know like some people that worked only for companies targeted by activists shifted to work at a law firm that advised activists. And, you know, he says that experience helped him a lot. But yeah, I totally agree that experience advising both sides is useful. I just think it's interesting how the U.S. market developed in such a way. So I wanted to ask you guys about the macro M&A environment and how that relates to activism. And I have some Fresh, somewhat counterintuitive data from Lazard, Global Data, reporting that campaigns internationally pushing for M&A, including divestitures, grew both in the fourth quarter and throughout 2022, and all this happened despite a cooling M&A market. So basically, more activism related to M&A as the M&A market globally cooled. You would think that there would be fewer activist campaigns pushing for deals. These include trying to scuttle or bump up existing deals trying to push for a sale of companies. And then the biggest one, particularly in Q4 2022, 
is push for divestiture of non-core assets or breakup of companies. So I don't know. I thought that was quite interesting. And so with that information, you know, know, that's globally. So I'm not sure how much of that breaks down to the UK or the European markets particularly, but curious if you expect to see much M&A related activism in the first quarter of 2023 and also wondering how you expect the debt markets to factor into this situation. Yeah, good question. And definitely one that we're being asked a lot about. So taking a step back, going into this year, we don't think anyone expects the fundamental issues which prompted the decline in global M&A to reverse quickly. Inflationary pressures, global supply chain issues, the rising cost of borrowing, and basically general geopolitical turmoil everywhere has contributed to volatile markets. And what's impacted private equity the most is effectively the significant impact on M&A because of financing. Despite this, I I tend to say we agree with the Lazard report to a certain extent in that we're cautiously optimistic that the activity we're seeing behind the scenes will develop into deals in 2023. Mm -hmm. And that's because the underlying drivers of M&A activity still exist. Availability of capital, variable exchange rates, and depressed valuations. They also remain. And we need to remember that 2021 was a record year, but regardless, M&A activity in 2022 was still strong when compared to prior years, which is what you see in the data in the Lazard report. So taking your next question, what does this mean for M&A-related activism? Well, volatile markets have always fostered active shareholder engagement. So we expect to see more engagement in a number of different guises. Many companies needed to refocus post the pandemic. And this led to, as you stated, an increase in restructurings, spinoff of non-core assets, and strategic acquisitions. Activist campaigns of some of the largest companies in the world focused on demands for spinoffs in the last few years. And we expect this trend to continue as demonstrated by last year as well. And this is primarily and unsurprisingly because of poor share price performance and poor underlying financial performance. And also while UK PLCs continue to trade at a discount to their international peers, there will be interest from international and UK buyers. A number of these bids will of course be, or will be perceived to be opportunistic. And this will lead to significantly more shareholder opposition, competition, and with greater opportunities for bumbatrage. Mm-hmm. And finally, Where valuation makes sense, activists will be looking to agitate for strategic share-for-share mergers, they'll preempt bids, and encourage competition for prize assets. Indeed, something we're seeing, which we can come on to in a bit, is certain activist fund structures have actually become more flexible over the last few years, which is actually enabling them to take private themselves. So a lot to unpack there, but in summary, kind of aligned with what you're seeing in the Lazard report, there definitely has been a lot of activity regardless of the background. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to unpack there. So hopefully let's do it kind of piece by piece. So one of the areas of M&A activism that I see a lot of in the UK and in Europe, and we've been writing a lot about it, is this bumpetrage strategy, which you mentioned, Sonica. And uh, so just for our listeners, it's basically a variation of the arbitrage strategy that involves an activist kind of agitating for higher prices when a deal happens. And uh, like you mentioned, Sonica, it sounds like there could be a lot of opportunistic offers if companies' valuations have have dropped significantly because of market conditions. So tell us a bit about that strategy. I don't know who would like to go first, but particularly curious if you find that a lot of this bumpetrage happens behind the scenes. So I'm reporting on a a few cases and a few activist funds targeting companies, but I I always suspect that there, there are other funds that are kind of working behind the scenes. And in other situations, there's no public agitation that the activist fund is engaging completely privately with the company seeking a higher bid. Yeah, great. And definitely an interesting part to discuss. So Tom and I can take this together. I'm happy to take the first bit. 
as you say, for the listeners, bumper charge refers to an activist investor's intervention and a public bid to basically force the bidder into improving its terms. So playing that out, you have an activist who would buy a stake in a UK-listed company, which is currently undergoing a takeover offer with the aim of forcing the bidder to increase its offer. As you'd expect, this sort of behavior carries risks with, for the activist because the bid may not ultimately succeed, leaving the activist with a loss if the PLC share price goes down. Or the bidder may call the activist bluff, which we've seen in the past, for example, with the offer for MRSAT, leaving the activist with two choices, either accepting the offer, possibly at a loss, or not accepting and potentially being left with a significant stake in an unlisted company. Right. But bottom line, bumper charge can also be very lucrative for activists. I'll hand over to Tom to give some thoughts and we can come back around to what we're seeing in terms of deals. Yeah, so taking a step back and looking at where we are in the market, I think given recent high valuations, we would expect that a number of bids will be perceived to be opportunistic and boards will need to navigate differing expectations between different shareholder bases in those cases. And the question there really is going to be, does the share price reflect a fundamental shift in the underlying business or is the company fundamentally mispriced? And depending on your views will depend on the position you take vis-a-vis a bidder and the target board. Now, you might ordinarily expect that to lead to an uptick in hostile engagement, but given the current market uncertainty, we're expecting that bidders will want to properly do diligence at Target's current trading and liability risks in particular. And so the sort of corollary expectation is that proper hostile bids are going to be restricted largely to situations where the bidder is already very familiar with the underlying assets of the Target company. So, for example, where the bidder is already a significant shareholder or perhaps a partner in the Target's business. And what that means is that Target boards can and are using shareholder support to improve offers behind the scenes, even before an announcement's been made. And that's interesting and particularly important where target boards are trying to navigate opaque valuations, because at the end of the day, it's the shareholders who are going to determine whether the bid fails or succeeds. And certainly no public company board wants to recommend an offer, which the shareholders subsequently turn down. So we're beginning to see an increase in more constructive engagement between shareholders and target boards in private and certainly preemptively ahead of a bid. Well, that's interesting. I never thought about that. <laughs> I've seen situations where, you know, some of these very large activist funds that have a huge number of assets under management, they're willing to what Sonic was talking about. You know, they're stuck with the company calls their bluff, does not raise the bid. They close the deal and the activist is stuck with these unlisted shares. And the company has to deal with this complex situation of having two annual meetings and things like that and listings in different places. And, and the activist has stuck around for a while, like years, to try to pressure the company to buy its shares at the premium at once. But I guess you don't expect to see much of that in this market situation, Tom? No, look, I think that's right. And, you know, Sonica alluded to a moment ago. That there's a broader trend that we're starting to see emerge around activists being the take private bidders themselves. And certainly we can talk about that if that's helpful. That does lead to a situation that you were describing where the activist would, of its own volition, end up sitting as the majority or 100% owner of a privately held company. So this is something that you brought up to me before, Tom, and I thought it was really interesting. You said that you're involved in four situations involving an activist agitating for M&A, losing patience, and wanting to buy the company themselves. And uh, tell us about the trend and whether activist funds are really set up to acquire companies. And I guess this is the idea that the activist has a strong conviction that it should be taken private. 
and the shares are not performing. And I guess they're worried that somebody else will take it private at a lower price below their cost basis. So they want to, to buy it themselves, I guess. Is that the strategy? So Roy, in the, in the short answer, yes. And you've pretty much got it nailed on there. There's a little bit of color I'd add to that. I fundamentally agree with that. So a few thoughts. As I say, this has been a trend that we've been calling for a little while, but as we've seen to start to emerge properly only really in the last 12 months, certainly in the UK. In fact, we're now up to our fifth situation within the last 12 months where we are advising what I would describe as an activist investor on a situation that starts out as an activist campaign, perhaps privately never goes into the public domain, and then morphs into a take private scenario. Sometimes it happens very quickly. Sometimes it happens after a couple of years. But this is very much activism leading to activists becoming the bidder itself, rather than trying to push the company to find somebody else to take it private. And that's super interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, in principle, why not, right? Activists are experts at identifying interesting and undervalued opportunities. So it would seem to me a very natural progression that they might start to look at acquiring the whole, particularly where there's a value opportunity which is being underestimated by the rest of the market and prospective bidders. Indeed, you could argue that the threat of a take private by an activist is the biggest gun that they could put on the table when engaging with a board during the initial stages of an activism campaign. Certainly, the tacit understanding that a hostile bid could be one outcome is something that may serve to focus the minds of the target board. Having said that, I think the reason why we haven't seen this trend emerge until recently is because historically, many traditional activist funds won't have had the flexibility in their existing fund documentation to pursue a takeover. They're mandated to hold listed equity, not private equity. And necessarily, a P2P involves moving from the former to the latter, which has been a bit of a blocker for them. So where we're seeing this take private willingness start to emerge is either with alternative investors that we're acting for that may have less restrictive funding mandates, or indeed, perhaps more traditional activists who are raising new money for special situations opportunities. And just as an aside, I would say that you know, activists exploring take privates is part of a broader trend that we see as a firm acting across the capital universe, different types of private capital investors. So private equity, activist hedge funds, other hedge funds, credit funds, they're all starting to employ techniques from the rest of the universe. So there is an expansion of the universe of activism. And at the same time, activists are expanding into other areas. So super interesting. One particular driver of the activists becoming bidders trend right now is exactly what you said, which is that the share price of a number of companies has continued to deteriorate post-pandemic. And let's say you have an activist that invested pre-pandemic, they're probably significantly underwater in that type of company right now. And there's a real threat that the activist is thinking about in real time that somebody else might emerge with, let's say, a 50% premium to the current share price to take the company private. Now, that type of premium may well be attractive to a wide spread of the target company register, but with the activists significantly underwater, a deal closing at a 50% premium may still crystallize a significant loss for the activist. So what's the solution? Well, the activist says to itself, why don't we take it private? Let's figure out a way that we can do that. At least then we can control our own destiny, control the company's destiny. We take it private, we continue with our conviction, and then we continue to benefit from the upside as the company improves, rather than crystallizing that loss and see somebody else make off with all the gains. 
My final thoughts on that is, as we're seeing this trend emerge, it's rare that we see the activist willing to do the take private on its own. We're seeing them team up, for example, with private equity or family offices to sit alongside them in a consortium. And there's two particular drivers of that. One might be perhaps a sense that bringing a private equity house in alongside them adds credibility to the activist and to the bid as a whole, both from a market and a target board perspective. And also, obviously, two people in the consortium help share the cost of the bid. So so he risks it for the activist to a certain extent. That's important. A lot of activists tell me that they bring a private equity approach to the public markets, like you said, Tom. And so now they can bring a private equity approach to the private markets by buying these companies or participating with the private equity firm to buy these companies. I'm curious, in the ones that you're interacting with, whether those are UK activist funds, US activist funds, and I'm wondering how their investors, their limited partners feel about this idea of becoming a hybrid sort of hedge fund and private equity fund. Well, look, it's frankly, it's a real mix. As I count through the situations that White & Case London have been working on the last 12 months, we've got investors from US, UK and Asia. So it's a pretty broad geographical spread. So I wouldn't say there's any one particular geography that you can point to that's that's leading this particular charge. What I would say is the point I made earlier is um, it needs the investor to have that flexibility in, in its fund documentation. Because as you rightly point out, First of all, it can't breach its funds terms in pursuing the investment. But second of all, it has to manage the relationship with its underlying investors. Now, if the money has been raised on flexible terms, then that's presumably all within the expectations of the investors. Similarly, if, if a traditional fund has gone out and raised a special situations fund, then most likely that's precisely to allow the activist fund managers to pursue this type of opportunity. Definitely something that I'll be keeping a close eye on. And this hybrid activist taking companies private when they are unable to get someone to buy the company at a premium to their cost basis is definitely very interesting. I'll be keeping a close eye on that. So we're almost out of time. Sonica, maybe I just wanted to throw one question. I forgot to ask you both before about this cross-border activism, US funds targeting European companies, and that is you know, the US dollar strengths. I'm wondering if that factors into cross-border bumpertrage and US activism targeting UK European companies. Yeah, in short, absolutely. UK PLCs are continuing to trade at a discount to their international peers. And so it is going to be expected that they will continue to attract interest from international investors. Actually, in fact, a recent study showed that UK equity markets are currently trading at close to a record discount as compared to US markets. So this is in part due to the weakness of the pound when compared to the strength of the dollar. But there's also been fundamental undervaluation of UK public equities. So The key deal dynamics are there, and they're delivering real value for opportunities to overseas investors, particularly from the US. And we, at Whiting Case, are continuing to receive significant number of inbound calls from US investors interested in UK equities. So this is, of course, as you'd expect, a fertile ground for activist investors, whether they're agitating for strategic change, change in approach to capital allocations, or for an M&A solution. As you know, wherever there's a fundamental disconnect between market valuation and underlying value, there are opportunities for activists, which is effectively what we're seeing now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I'm curious if the valuation is another reason why U.S. activists might try to partner with a private equity firm to buy a U.K. company, perhaps. Okay, this is it. We are out of time. This has been Ron Oral, and you've been listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I've been speaking to White & Case's Tom Matthews and Sonica Talani. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks, Ron. Our Thanks pleasure. very much.